Welcome to Culture Factor. I'm your host, Holly Shannon. Our new season looks at creators, innovators, and entrepreneurs. Why? Because the gig economy is emerging. Talent has gone to work for themselves. Whether furloughed or part of the great resignation, they've birthed the big idea, and those 57 million Americans are contributing more than $1 trillion to the U.S. economy annually. This is what the new normal looks like. You now have a front row seat to creator culture and into the places where the magic is being made. Subscribe now to Culture Factor so your ears are treated to some of the best stories around the world. And if you take the time to rate, review, and share this, please send me the screenshot and I'll give you a shout out on my show. Please reach out if you'd like to sponsor Culture Factor. It is your opportunity to be a part of a show that is ranked in the top 2% globally and heard in over 77 countries. Email holly at hollyshannon.com to be a part of this global audience. Hello, Culture Factor family. Today, I have a very special guest. Uh, She's also a friend, and I'd love to share with you a little about her before I bring her in because she is such a rock star. So award-winning Ghanaian-American designer and unfashioned visionary, Mimi Plange launched her own lifestyle brand in 2010 after a decade working in the New York fashion industry. She is a graduate of the San Francisco Fashion Institute of Design and Merchandising and holds a degree in architecture from the University of California at Berkeley. Plange's designs have been sold in luxury boutiques in the United States, Kuwait, and Qatar, and she has shown her collections in New York, Sweden, South Africa, Cote d'Ivoire, Paris, and Nigeria. Her many partnerships include collaborations with famed shoe designer Manolo Blahnik, the iconic furniture brand Roche Bobois, Instagram, and most recently, LeBron James and Nike Basketball. In 2016, she took part in the Celebration of Design event hosted by Michelle Obama at the White House. Plange's garments have been displayed in museums around the world, including the Fashion Institute of Technology in New York, Moot Gallery in Hong Kong, Spelman Museum in Atlanta, and the Minneapolis Museum of Art. Mimi Plange's designs have been worn by First Lady Michelle Obama, Vanessa Hutchins, Serena Williams, Terry Hatcher, Rihanna, Gabrielle Union Wade, Paris Hilton, Viola Davis, Regina King, Janelle Monet, and Aquafina for her very first Screen Actors Guild Award. Her work has been featured in the New York Times, T Magazine, Vogue.com, Ebony Magazine, Vogue UK, Vogue India, WWD, Harper's Bazaar, Marie Claire, Essence, Glamour, Glamour Magazine, Cosmopolitan, and Nylon Magazine. This woman is a rock star. And hello, Mimi Plange. Welcome to Culture Factor. Hi, Holly. Thank you so much for having me. It's so awesome to be able to speak with you here today on Culture Factor. So this is the most incredible bio, and I had to read the whole thing. Um, I'm not even sure where to begin, but I'm leaning towards, let's talk with your latest collaboration around um, your shoe line with LeBron James and Nike Basketball, because I think it's such an arc in in your unfashion um, viewpoint. And so I'd love to share that. Would you, would you explain like how that came to be and how it represents your work? Well, over the course of years, you know, we kind of started out doing fashion, um, having dreams as a little girl of wanting to be a fashion designer and um, and constantly working towards that goal um, as I grew up. And when I actually got the opportunity to start designing and to start my brand after working in the industry, um, initially I kind of started out as just wanting to be a fashion designer and making clothes and making women's wear and kind of focusing on um, on the aesthetics of design and craftsmanship. And over the course of time and just looking at the world and how everything has changed now with like the internet, you have so many um, 
points that are kind of converging and overlapping and mixing into one another. And I felt like just focusing on clothing wouldn't be enough. And, um, and we decided that we wanted to really kind of build out and build a lifestyle brand and kind of think about what was going on in the world and how to reflect it and um, in our vision and how to take what we believe in this idea of what it means to be unfashioned, what it means to not follow, um, you know, follow the trends and, and follow people necessarily and kind of like believe in your own self and your own identity um, within a group, you know, to still feel connection, but to have your own identity within those connections and um, what it's like to be an outsider and how it doesn't always have to be seen as a negative thing. And it's, and it's okay to have your own ways of thought and your own um, ways of being. And so, you know, through that, we kind of decided that we would create, you know, products that we felt like, you know, felt in line with our lifestyle. And we started, we were biking to work every day. So we made bicycles, you know, and um, we started doing furniture and we started doing all these different things. And um, and I personally, I wear sneakers with everything. I even wear sneakers um, with evening wear. And, um, and I knew at some point, like it was part of, definitely part of the dream to have a collaboration with, um, with Nike at some point. And, um, and, you know, when they reached out to us, it was just like a huge surprise um, because it happened sooner than I thought it was going to. And, you know, it was just really organic. Like their style of working was just really organic. And then when I found out that it was um, to work specifically with the LeBron James brand, um, I was even more excited because um, my husband and I, who's my business partner, we had been big fans of LeBron for a long time. My husband loves basketball. He's definitely the one who introduced me to him. And um, my whole family are, everyone is just like a huge LeBron James fan. So like this was something that we felt like really fell into line with, you know, us and as a brand and who we like and who, you know, we're interested in. And, um, and the way it kind of started was, you know, we started visiting some schools and, um, you know, something that's really important to, um, LeBron, I believe, is, you know, this whole idea of education and, and um, giving back to the youth and um, giving back to um, just this idea of like, you know, implementing education as a, as a way to obtain things that you need in life. And so we would visit these schools and just kind of talk to the students, you know, and they were very familiar, I guess, this is something that um, Nike practices a lot. And, um, and I thought it was amazing. And just to get the feedback and just to see what, you know, the students were interested in and just to see kind of like what they were excited about. And, um, and from there, you know, we just started meeting and, um, and it was very open. It was like, you know, what do you want to design? And, and for me, the challenge was how do I connect the dots between the items that I've already created, you know, our vision, which is kind of taking things that are from the historical past, um, my heritage from being from Ghana, my business partner, um, he was born in Paris, but grew up in Senegal and Belgium and kind of mixing all of these things together. You know, that's really what we like to do. We like to take inspiration from the past, pre-colonial of um, African bodies, African architecture, African rituals, African craftsmanship, African stories. And, um, find a way to weave them into really modern um, American fashion because I grew up in America and, um, and I'm an American designer and finding ways to kind of express that within a world that, you know, I live in today, a, a Western world and um, the dominant, you know, fashion aesthetics of what lies in America, which is kind of like a casual kind of fashion. And so just trying to think about how to, you know, kind of use that and, um, and mix it with the LeBron brand um, and, and our brand. And so where I kind of started was, um, I was kind of free to just do whatever sketches I wanted. There was really no direction given. It was just like, you're a designer that we're approaching because we like the work that you do and what can you bring to the table? And I decided to just do four sketches and they were four very different sketches. And, um, and it was supposed to be to choose one. And when, um, and the first approach was just to, 
what inspired me was just thinking about LeBron's whole idea of education and how I personally am a big champion of education as well, because I don't think that I would be where I'm at today if I hadn't done well in school. Um, only because that was, for me, the education was like my ammunition. It was just like the only thing I kind of had to pull me out from the situation that I was in and it worked. And so I believe in it. And, um, and so the first collection, we decided to focus on um, education and kind of came up with this whole idea of um, a varsity style sneaker. And that was based off of my style. I wear varsity jackets all the time as well. We always design varsity jackets. And so we felt like, you know, let's make a shoe that's based off of that. That was really a dedication to LeBron and his, um, just his, you know, the mixing of sport and, and school and just kind of like trying to create an image of that. So that was the first design. And then the second design was um, this whole idea of his championing of women in a shoe that you know we now call daughters, and um, and that was more of like a floral expression, and that was actually rooted in a collection that I did in 2012 that was called Flowers in the Desert, that was about the Herrera women who live in Namibia, who had been um, colonized by um, the Germans, and to this day they still maintain the same style of dress that um, that had been brought to them. Um, many, many, you know, centuries ago in the 18th century and 17th century. And so they wear these big petticoats and they wear a lot of floral designs, mixing a lot of different patterns and plaids and, and florals and stripes. And, um, and so I did a, a collection that was dedicated to them and inspired by them into like a modern look of like just their different fabric mixing that they still do today. And so, um, and that was in 2012. And so that shoe was a reflection of that one. And then the next shoe was inspired by scarification, which is um, the basis of our design. Um, I got into this whole idea of wanting to represent a type of um, African inspiration because my mom has a scar on her cheek and it was always very intriguing to me. And I remember watching the color purple and there was like this scene in there where, um, Whoopi Goldberg's children were getting scarification marks on their cheeks as a initiation. And it was always really, really interesting to me. And as I got older, I started like studying, you know, what is scarification, which is like the cutting of the skin using different tools. Like sometimes it's coconut shells. Sometimes it can be a knife. Um, and um, they basically create patterns within the skin. And it's done, it was done all throughout Africa in different tribes had different styles in which they used scarification. And some of my favorites come from the Benin tribe who do a very fine linear um, design all around their bodies. Um, as, they, as they get older, they add and they add to it. But now it's, it's pretty much banned in most countries um, only because most people don't have a choice if they want it or not because it starts from the time that you're a child all the way up until you're an adult. But and all the different tribes have different reasons for doing it. Some of it is just for beauty, um, but it's a lot deeper than that. Some of it is for spirituality. Some of it is um, even for sexuality and some of it is for healing. And there's so many different meanings of why these marks are on the body. And so I kind of use those marks and I use leather as a mimic to the skin. And, um, and I also use the patterns that I see within nature and within these African bodies to create garments. And that's actually how I started. So I also created a shoe like that. And then the last shoe was kind of based off of this whole idea of telling a, a, a story that was actually based on South African Bantu, um, Bantu symbols. And um, each of the symbols have different meanings. And I chose different symbols that I felt like represented LeBron. So long story short, we were supposed to just do one shoe, um, but when I presented all four of the shoes to Nike, they ended up um, wanting to do all four of them. And so I was totally thrilled. And, um, and that is pretty much how the shoes came about. That is mind blowing that they chose all four. How exciting. <laughs> that is amazing. I saw, <clears throat> excuse me, your first one that you released was the um, the varsity style one, if I'm correct. Yes. And then the second one where it was uh, daughters. That's that's the pair I have actually, and I didn't <laughs> realize 
um, the the background on it. So what's so interesting is like when I received that, there were two different um, sets of laces to use. So the purple ones that were presented were like a very different pattern. So that is in line with what you were saying that the women in the the Namibia, I'm not saying that correctly, sorry, in the 18th century would pair like all different types of um, styles like plaid you were saying with flowers and the whole thing. Is, is that where you took that from? Definitely, definitely. And so it was supposed to be like, if you see that the, there's one shoelace that kind of matches back and that was for me to give safety to those who really want to match, you know, and and really don't want that point of difference. But the original shoelaces are um, like a gingham print and they um, are against the flowers. And the reason why we chose that was because there was always a mixing of like all these two dual kind of, you know, ideas going on. And, and actually here in America, like gingham is like a very traditional kind of, you know, old school kind of print too. So I'm always trying to mix the cultures together. I'm trying to bring things together in a way that makes you look at the items and not always necessarily know the backstory, but to love the item first and then to hear this about the story later on. So you would never actually look at our work and think, oh, this is African design. You know, it would have to kind of be explained to you um, because I'm consciously doing it in a very subtle way and that's on purpose. And that's um, to kind of bring people in without having any kind of prejudice or preconceived idea of what African fashion is. In the past, it's always been um, perceived as like, you know, bright prints and, you know, a lot of beads and all these things, like, you know, a few little things that are kind of chosen from the Maasai tribe or, um, or from West Coast kind of prints that really come from Indonesia and some Asian countries and are not even traditionally, and even some of them are Dutch wax prints. They're not all traditionally African prints. And so I felt like there were these stories that were being told, but not through um, a lens that was actually taking the time to really do the research on you know the meanings of these things and why they exist. And so for me, it's just like, I feel like we're storytellers who are constantly trying to share a little bit of, um, of our stories and our past, but doing it in a way that is very modern and of today. I think you succeeded at that. I, I didn't know the story behind the daughter's collection with that. And I just really loved the contrast uh, between the gingham and the flowers. So, um, and now that I know the story behind it, it makes it like even more special. So um, I think you succeeded. Thank you. <laughs> and, and so the third iteration, the scarification one has not come out yet. Is that correct? That is correct. Um, the last two will be out next year. So you had done a whole line. Um, I know that you said the, um, the daughters harked back to an older collection. So the scarification collection harks back to uh, a line that you did for a while. You created handbags and dresses um, and probably some other things I'm, I'm not aware of. Um, will you be resurfacing um, your collection in clothes to maybe pair up some of the elements in the, the next sneaker next year? Um, I will definitely be bringing back some oldies, but goodies. Um, a lot of pieces in our collections, especially the Scarification Collection, which um, was designed in 2009, but came out in 2010. That collection was um, mostly leather, mostly evening wear. It was a lot of handwork um, was done on it and um, and it was a very pricey collection. So it was very difficult for a lot of people to have their hands on it. And there were a lot of people making requests as to how they could get some of these items, but it was very difficult to be able to produce it at a lower cost because we make everything in New York and um, everything is done in small batches. And a lot of the work was by hand. And so being able to have this shoe, actually, um, I was so happy because it was like an affordable way for people to be able to get into our ideas of scarification and, and how it's created. And so for us, we are gonna have some old pieces that 
um, were really amazing, but were not really out there in the world. And we're also having some new pieces that are very new. And, um, and we'll also have some of the scarification elements to it as well, but done in a very new way. So we're very, very excited to be sharing that collection again and to be reminding people of where we come from. Because to me, the scarification is a root of our business because it's about identities and it's about, it's what led us to get to the place of what we now call unfashioned, which is a different way of seeing it. Like in the beginning, through design, you know, you kind of start where you have these inspirations that are, um, that, you know, can be kind of literal, you know, as you go and you kind of reflect them in a literal way. And I think as you grow as a designer, you're able to tell your story in a way that's not so limited, you know, like you, you can see the bigger picture as you go and you know that like what you're designing to now is more so a feeling. And, um, and, but like, for instance, when I used to do the scarification, like I would look at the scars, like the actual scars on the bodies and I would reflect them in the leather fabrics. And, um, and now it's not that I have to, you know, use the exact image and reflect the identity in that way, but I can now reflect it in, you know, maybe a shape, you know, or maybe, um, you know, even with color and things like that. So it's kind of evolved in a way, in the way that I see design and kind of open myself to be a little bit more free and think about designing for the identity and designing for, you know, the feeling and the mood instead of just designing like this specific item. That's a very cool way of looking at it. I, th I think the literal part can slow down a creator. Like if you're trying to really um, physically make something, that way you sort of lose the creative side of it. Like you get so deep in it. I love that you're, you were able to distill it down to smaller elements that translate. Um, the, the scarification is so interesting to me because you had said earlier how education has always been an important part for you and it allows you to rise above, like to, to get to that next level. And, um, so I, and I feel like, you know, you have your education. It doesn't, it doesn't leave you. It's a part of you. It's kind of like your scar. So I'm really excited to see that third sneaker that will probably make it to my wardrobe next year. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. Um, I'm really excited about it. And, um, and just, you know, it's been such a crazy time. And um, to be honest, it's like a blessing to just be able to design right now and to kind of lose yourself so that you're not so caught up with everything that's going on, even though it's important and, you know, to stay um, to just stay present in everything that's happening, but it's nice to also escape and get into your mind. And, and that is through education and that is through design and like reading new books and having, you know, so, so that you're not getting too, too wrapped up in, um, in things that just kind of like kill your creativity. Mm -hmm. Well, will you translate some of the designs into other products that have sold well for you. Um, I, I just bring this up because I recall like along with your bike, you also did like skateboard decks and things like that. Will you be moving any of the Nike collaborations to other products? Well, I don't know. We'll see, you know, um, I hope so. Um, it would, it would be amazing. And so, I mean, I think, you know, for us, it's like, you know, making sure that the things that we're working on, you know, do well and have a great response. And I think, you know, whenever we do our projects, um, like when, you know, we've been fortunate, like when we started with Manolo Blahnik, we were only going to do like one shoe and we ended up doing four. And then, you know, when we worked with Rochefort, you know, we were doing textiles for them and we ended up doing wallpapers and a couch and pillows. And so it's like, 
for me, I just try to all give a hundred percent, you know, when you're doing a collaboration with someone and as a, as the smaller brand, I think like, you know, you want to shine, but you also want to make sure that the people that you're working with also shine and you get your identity in there. And you also elevate their identity while you're working with them. And I think when you're able to do that, then you grow your relationship because so much of, you know, being a designer besides having great product, because there's a lot of amazing designers out there in the world, a lot of it comes with the relationship that you are able to cultivate with people and being able to work well with people and being able to join forces with people and um, and tell a variety of, of, of stories because this world now is very fast. Like I felt like when I first wanted to be a designer and I would look at people like Azadine Alaya and I look at Carl Lagerfeld, they were, you know, really able to focus in on their craft. You know, the world was quieter back then. And, um, and now people's attention spans are like a lot um, a lot faster. So you have to be able to hop around really quickly. And so it's like just trying to think of how you can leave your mark and, and make sure that people want to come back to you. Um, I don't think too much about the, the next project too much, um, even though those are hopes and probably dreams that are inside my head. But I try to focus on just making what I'm currently working on amazing, but um, but I would hope that um, I would be able to continue working with um, the LeBron James team and um, and Nike. That would be fantastic because it's so in line, like you were saying, with the ideals around education and sport, and I do believe they're so intertwined. So it is such a great fit for you. I. I do hope that there are some further things that come down the road. I think there will be. I'm often asked, does my business need a podcast? My answer is yes, that nothing else is the fast track into thought leadership and being established and seen as the expert in your industry as podcasting. What's increasingly evident is that it's a branding machine. It kicks doors open for you to have conversations with leaders. It creates a pathway to partnerships and connections on a deeper level. You will not be your industry's best kept secret. Your ideas and business will have global reach. So step into your power. Go to hollyshannon.com to launch your podcast now. And now back to our interview. find it hard so when I look at the different partnerships you've had so let's go back um, Manolo Blahnik uh, Roche Bavois and and Nike and the LeBron James there's such different canvases you know I think of like Manolo Blahnik it's a very um, it's a smaller canvas right so if you're making um, a high-heeled shoe for a woman and there's less design elements perhaps on it, you know, cause maybe you have the strap going across the, you know, the, the footbed a little bit and, and the strap around the ankle, there's like less product, like less canvas to put your stamp on it. Whereas when I think of a piece of furniture and the textiles and the wallpaper, you have a huge canvas that you're creating. Um, and then, of course, the sneaker is has more coverage than, say, a designer shoe like Manolo Blahnik put out. Did, was that a struggle for you or was that an interesting challenge or did you like doing one above another? Um, I think that, you know, the thing is like we're this is like luxury brands versus I mean, you can debate whether you think. I think that Nike falls between a luxury brand and also a mass um, brand because they appeal to a lot of range of people, you know? And I mean, I think as a brand, it's amazing to be able to like sell across all those different spectrums, to be able to create merchandise that's really coveted, that sells at that high price point because of the quality and everything. And then also be able to get your shoes on on the people, the real people in the world who are um, moving around every day, that, that's the most amount of people that's on this earth. And when you get into the Manolo Blahniks and the Roche Bobois, that's a lot smaller group of people that you're appealing to. And I think um, the reason why those things kind of work for me, and I didn't find it challenging, it's like, it's actually what I love to do. And it's 
I like to merge different things together that you wouldn't necessarily think would go together. And I think because I grew up in very humble surroundings and um, and I did well in school and I went to UC Berkeley and I was able to have, you know, um, when I moved to, I moved to New York and I just like ran around with my resume and tried to get a job, you know, anywhere. And I just had this big dream. And, um, and I think because I kind of had a background where I was working in, um, in streetwear and, um, but then my design style was always a little bit more high-end geared towards a more niche consumer base. And I think because I've been able to design in a way that's what I would call kind of like a chameleon, like I'm not stuck in any one specific style. Like there are designers that I've met and they only want to design one way. They're like, no, this is what I do. And I don't do this and that. And I feel like I can design a lot of things, you know, what's the approach? Tell me what all the parameters we're designing into, like what's the price point, you know, what are the fabrics and I'll design into something that's in that. And to me, it's fun to be able to do both. But in order to be able to do both, you have to understand both consumers. And I think as a young person, um, even though I grew up in humble surroundings, like we ended up being able to go to this other neighborhood where even though we we all lived in a very small apartment, like a lot of my friends lived in um, bigger houses and had different experiences. And so I always had the experience of, you know, what it's like to, um, to, to not have a lot and what it's like to have a lot. And so it's always been my experience growing up. And so I'm very comfortable in both realms. I'm very comfortable telling both stories. I know what both consumers look like. And I, you know, even now, like I study both kind of consumers because it just helps me be a better designer and understand people better. And I think that that's actually what makes you a good designer. And so, um, so I don't know, I, found, I find it to be exactly what I wanna do. And, I, and I'm very, I feel very blessed to be able to do that because I think sometimes fashion has a tendency to wanna you know, um, put you in a corner and force you into designing a certain way based off of who they think you are and what your background is and who you know. And, um, and I think that we've been able to break out of that and say, hey, you know, we can do mass, we can do high-end, we can do very niche. Um, you know, we can design. And so I look at design as being able to touch as many people as possible. And I think that that's just, it just happens to work for us because that's our approach. And I think that that's why um, we're able to do all of them. But I, and I don't like, there's not one project that's better than the other. I think that all of them have been amazing and they've all come at very different parts of um of our journey. And I think that they've come when they were supposed to come. And so um, for us, it's just really being able to work with that bigger brand that has been around for a long time that we can also learn from and, um, and to also be able to just broaden our reach, you know, through them as well. And, um, and just to be able to tell different kinds of stories, you know, not to be stuck into any one. And I think that that's very different. And, um, and I think that that's what, you know, really makes us unique. I agree. I, you know, I think creators have a hard time um, sitting in that place of whatever success looks like to them, that it's going to come when it's supposed to come, like you said. Um, and, and this is part of your approach. Um, in terms of doing what feels right and exploring a lot of different uh, ways of doing business and who the people are that are interesting to you that you want to speak to that you want to create for. Um, I think understanding your range also comes from putting in the reps and you know we really haven't talked much about you know, how you started, I mean, we talked about your upbringing and where you lived and, and how you were exposed to different things. And maybe that gave you a read on people. But I think you actually started off with some bigger companies before you created your eponymous line. So can you share a little bit about your journey? And, and maybe it will help people understand how you developed that range? Um, 
so I after right after I graduated from Berkeley, I went straight to fashion school in San Francisco. And I felt like I needed to, like, I did a lot of research before then, like, cause I had a lot of different feedback. I was asking some people, you know, um, I didn't really know anyone in the fashion industry, but I just felt like, did I really have to go to school again? Um, you know, it seemed like there was a lot of people in the industry who hadn't gone to school. So I wasn't really sure, but then I just came to the consensus that, you know, the thing is, I don't know anyone in this industry. I don't know anything about the fashion industry. And again, I'm going to use the thing that I think makes you most safe in life, and that's education. And I decided to go to school because I needed to learn a little bit about this industry. And um, I, after, right after I graduated, um, within three months, I was in New York. I just, you know, I had saved up a little bit of money I had, and I literally had like $400. And I moved to New York, and um, I was living in this little room, and I didn't have a job yet. And every day I would just go out and um, and take my resume and just go drop it off in places. I would look up places in the newspaper. I was just looking at, you know, whatever was available and I just would just go there. And, you know, of course I thought I was gonna move to New York and get a job at like, I don't know. I thought I was gonna be working for like Dior or like someone like that, you know? And you always have your big dreams and then you really get into the fashion industry and you really learn that like, the bulk of the fashion industry is actually like, you know, the bigger brands, you know, the brands like Gap and, and, um, and Banana Republic and, and those kind of like more mass brands, you know, Levi's and, and, um, and then the smaller companies are actually the luxury brands and most of them are not based in the U.S. and they're, um, you know, abroad. And so I started, um, I, like I said, I had no idea. So I got my first job as a merchandiser at a jewelry company that sold um, like barrettes and um, and um, faux jewelry to places like Walmart and um, Target and and I don't even know if like Sears was around. And so it was like really like a, a low price point product. And I worked with, it was a very small company, but they had a lot of volume and they were selling, you know, big units all around the U.S. And um, as a merchandiser, I worked with a designer and a graphic designer. And I was kind of bummed out because I wanted to be a designer, but I didn't necessarily want to do jewelry or, you know, hair accessories. And so this was like a new, you know, getting your foot in the door, which everyone in school, they constantly tell you, just get your foot in the door. You know, you'll, you'll end up, you know, where you want to do and I, where you want to go. And I do agree that you should just get your foot in the door because it's very hard to get into the fashion industry because most of the people I went to school with never ended up with a job in fashion. So um, so when I was working there, my job was mainly to look at the products and organize them into little collections. And so every time, like the way, like in my mind, I always wanted to be a designer. So every single job I had, I was, when I would come home, I would literally, I had this sketchbook, I still have my sketchbook, and I would take notes in there off of like the different things because I felt like I needed to know different aspects of the business in order to be able to run my own business. And so I was like, even though I never wanted to be a merchandiser, let me go in here and learn as much I can as I can about merchandising, because that's going to help me later. And so then the next job I got after that was, um, was working for, um, the Avenue, which was um, a plus size uh, Missy Wear company. And I don't know if they're still in existence to today, um, today, but it was a pretty big chain. They had them all around the US and I was an assistant designer there. I was an assistant sweater designer and the assistant wovens designer. And when I got there, um, there were a team of six designers and none of them had ever had assistance before. And the company was growing. And so they had hired a, a bunch of assistants. And so it was the first time they were working with assistants and all of them only knew how to sketch by hand. And so they really hired us to be able to take the work that they were doing and illustrate them on computer. And so um, one of the things that they asked right away was, do you know how to sketch on Illustrator? And I said, yes. But when I was in school, actually, they taught us how to sketch on Photoshop. So, um, 
So, oh no, no, I'm switching that. Like I knew how to sketch on on um, on Illustrator, but not on Photoshop. And they wanted us to, to do it all on Photoshop. So I said yes anyway, because I was like, you know, how hard can it be? I'm just gonna learn this and and take the job. And so um, I was pretty scared at first because I was like, oh my gosh, if I can't do this, you know, this is gonna be a big problem. And so my first day of work, I remember like I stayed there the whole day like the whole like everybody was gone and i was still there and i was just practicing because i didn't have a computer at home and i just like practiced and practiced and i was like okay it's not so different and i can do this and so um i stayed there and i learned how i learned a lot about you know making sweaters and um and wovens and um and took that and then became an assistant designer um, for menswear at Rockwear. And here again is another situation where I had never done menswear. And now I had the opportunity to get a job. And so all I did was I was like, I want this job. And I went and I made a whole new portfolio that had menswear in it. And then I went and I did the interview and I was like, you know, this is my portfolio. And I ended up getting the job. And, um, and it was really there that I started to grow. And um, I was an assistant designer for a while. I became um, a designer within the year that I worked. I grew really fast there. And then I became a head designer for one of their divisions that they had um, that was called State Property. And then from there, I ended up being the creative director for um, the women's brand. And I believe that's where I met you. Um, and at the time, um, before I got that position, I had been working with um, Rachel Roy who had left to start her own line and she had been the creative director. So I took over, but in the beginning I helped her with her collection and, um, and we worked together on jewelry. And um, from there, I went off to be the vice president of design at this company called RBC that owned a lot of different, a lot of different brands and celebrity brands and, um, and they owned Beyonce's brand at that time, which was called Darion. They had Ellen Tracy for a while, um, the licensing for that, um, J Brand Denim, another brand called Necessary Objects. And um, at that point, I was the VP of design for all the brands that they had. And um, I had designers and graphic designers working under me. So I really had the experience of being a merchandiser, being an assistant, being a designer, being a head designer, being a design director, being a vice president of design. I really went up the ranks of design. And for me, um, even though I felt like I never wanted to really work in, um, in those markets, I felt like it was the best thing that I could have ever done for myself because I really got to see, you know, firsthand how these businesses were run. And I really got, you know, firsthand experience of working with the sales team and working with the production team and working with, you know, um, the merchandising team. And I learned so much. And I felt like those were the things that helped me grow my business pretty relatively quickly. Um, and those were the things that kept me in business um, so that I could be here today speaking with you. What a great, great story. And, and that's why, like you were saying earlier, understanding your range like you built your range right you all these different experiences you know i find it fascinating you know there is a um there's a stat out there that says that men will apply for a job any job even if they don't have all the experience that's laid out on the, the job requirements. Mm -hmm. And women, if they don't have all the job requirements, if they're even missing one, they won't apply to it. That men are just more assertive. They'll like, they'll either fake it till they make it or they'll figure it out when they get there. And it's so interesting to you, to me, that you did it with the menswear line that you went and you just rebuilt a portfolio that would allow you to come in the door and speak to that, even though you had no experience in it, and how you learned um, the Photoshop and uh, Illustrator, like how you just figured it out. You said, I know how to do it <laughs> even yeah. before. So uh, I think it speaks so much to um, probably who you were growing up, you know, that you, I just had confidence in 
the educational component, like I'll figure it out. Like I'm smart. I've gone to school. I'll figure this out. Yeah, that's it. You know, that's it. Like, why not? Like, I don't, I don't understand why someone else would be able to do it, but I can't like, I don't, I, that's how I look at it. Like, I'm just like, what does this person have that I don't have nothing, you know, like, that's how I look at it, you know? And so I just feel like you have to give yourself the ammunition. It's like, I feel like my mom was, you know, she, I felt like she was brainwashing us all the time, you know, like, I mean, I grew up in a single family home, you know, she was raising five children by herself, you know, and we lived in a very small place, but it was like, and she was always at work, you know, so you would think that in those kind of situations that everybody would be broken up or this one would have ended up on drugs or this one would be out there doing something, you know, bad, but all of my siblings, we all went to college, you know, every single one of us and all of us are okay, you know, and it's just that my mom was just kind of like, look, and I think that this wouldn't work for everybody, but it worked for us. And I just, she was just constantly, she like, she never really asked to see our grades. Like she was never really like, you know, she knew we had good grades and stuff, but she just wasn't really, it was just what was expected because she was kind of had the attitude that like this life is whatever you're going to make out of it. And, um, and she was always very clear about like life not being fair and to, you know, and whatever we wanted, we would have to create. And she was like, look, you know, I don't have any money to, you know, give to you to go to college. So you're going to have to get a scholarship if you want to go. And, um, and some people, you know, that wouldn't work for them. But for me, it was like a motivation. And then I think also because I'm the youngest and all my siblings were kind of, they did well in school and maybe that inspired me too, you know. Um, I don't know, but I think that I always, I felt like she always made us believe that we can do anything, we could be anything and, um, and that we could do whatever we want as long as our education was like really above average, like, as long as it was like that, we would be okay. And so I've always believed that because it worked for me. And so that's what I try to share with people. And I try to share, like, I'm just like, I don't know what to tell you, but I think it works, you know, because, um, because I just didn't really have much and it still seems to be working. And I think though, like, I just think it comes from you. I think it's the way you think about yourself. I think it's the way that, you know, you put yourself out in the world. And I think it's the belief in yourself. And I know if you look at every single star or somebody who gets up and they win an award and they're, you know, doing their speech, they're like, you know, um, you just have to believe in yourself. And everybody kind of thinks that that's cheesy. But I think people really don't understand how hard it is to actually believe in yourself, especially in the kind of world that we live in today, you know, like, if you, if you compare yourself to others and you're going to be down a drain of despair that you don't want to be, you'll never be like anybody else. You don't know what that other person's really going through. Some people project certain things and you just don't know the truth. So the only thing that you can have control over and the only thing that you can focus on is yourself. And, um, and for me, it was like a matter of, of getting skills. I was like, okay, I don't know how to do this. I'm going to do that. Like, I think I can get away with this. I'm just going to try, you know? And then if like they say no, then they say no. And that's okay too. And so um, I definitely have always felt that I could do it. I mean, since I was little, like I was like, I mean, I think from the time I was 12, I was like, I'm going to be a fashion designer. And so um, I just was like, how am I going to get there? I was just thinking like, it was like such from where I grew up, it was such a far away world. And then who would have think, I mean, you know, to have gone to the White House and to have dressed the former first lady and to have done all those things, like you cannot do that if you don't think you can do it, you know? So a lot of it to me is mental. And, um, and I definitely believe a lot in energy and bringing things to you, but it doesn't mean that everything is always gonna be perfect. And it doesn't mean that it's not gonna be hard. So, um, but you, but the faith is kind of like what keeps you going throughout. And, um, and I mean, even for us, I mean, I feel like, oh, sometimes I'm like, I wish, you know, I feel like we could be further or we could have done this. And it's like, you know, but then I have to have gratitude for where I'm at right now. And, um, and then I'm just like, okay, you know, maybe you just have to be better, you know, and just, and those are the kind of conversations I have with myself, like, I feel like I'm the one in control when things are not right. It's like something I need to do better or I need to maneuver myself in a different way or I need to, you know, bypass something or, you know, but I'm the one who's going to do it. That was such a mic drop. I don't 
want to add anything <laughs> that your mental toughness is just amazing to me and i i've known you for a long time i mean i did allude to the part that you were my friend in the beginning um and i have watched you grow and and take on a lot of different challenges i mean we met something like 15 years ago or something mm -hmm. um and worked together and you're your exponential growth has been, you know, something incredible to watch, but you never took anything for granted and you never, you know, your mental gain ha game has always been the pinnacle of your, your strength and your growth. Like you always knew who you were and what you were capable of doing. And I'm so glad that I'm able to introduce you um, to my little community because I think you're, you're somebody to, to watch if people haven't seen you before. I, I've been watching you. Um, and I just think um, I want everybody to follow your work and to take a look at um, some of the things you're creating because I, I think that they're so enjoyable. Like the sneakers are so fun and your clothing is fantastic and, and so meticulous. Um, so I'm I'm not going to let you say anything else based on what you said because it was so perfect. And um, I'm glad that we were able to to have this time together. Um, I, I think um, you shine such a light on fashion in a different way. It's incredible, Mimi. Thank you, Holly. Thank you. And I'm just, you know, I'm just thankful to be able to share and 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 share my stories. I know I'm a little bit quieter than most probably designers, but um, but I think as time grows on, like I love just kind of talking about, you know, just how it all came to be and just really what I'd love to do um, and why I do what I do is just to champion people and young people and let them know that like, even from the worst circumstances that you could possibly, you know, be in, you can still have it all maybe, you know, but you can still do what you want to do and it doesn't have to be a limitation. It doesn't mean it's going to be easy, but, um, but to not feel helpless or to not feel like you have to go down a route that you don't have control and to not be caught up in other people's, you know, thoughts of where you should be or how you should be and to be able to formulate your own and hold that because it's more important than what anyone else thinks of you. And so, you know, eventually I think um, if I can just inspire people and that's really why we do it, you know, really to inspire as many people as possible. Um, you know, I think that that's, that's why we're on this journey. I think that's so fantastic. And I think, um, the bedrock, the foundation is education and believing in yourself. I mean, that's what I've gathered from our conversation together. I think it's really amazing. Thank you, Mimi. Thank you, Holly. Well, Culture Factor family, I'm going to put the links to find Mimi on Instagram and her website uh, so that you can sign up on her website, I encourage you to do so. So when they drop the next line of uh, her collaboration with LeBron James and, and Nike basketball, you can be a part of it. Because um, I know I am. It's so much fun. So thank you again. I really appreciate this. Thank you.